0: Um, You guys are amazing, and we appreciate you. So for announcements, it's going to be short and brief. Um, So first of all, Grief Share begins this week, and yeah, just please check the bulletins. Also, I just want to give a big thanks to Northgate for another opportunity of allowing me to serve in some kind of capacity. Um, If you're just tuning in, I was the interim youth pastor for Garrett as he was gone on parental leave, and he'll be coming back this week, so I just want to thank you once again for how you're empowering this next generation of soon-to-be pastors. I just thank you for that. So let's just, yeah, open the service up with prayer. Yeah, thank you, Father God, for yet another opportunity to, uh, yeah, just tune into service and learn more about you, God. I just pray that you will use Pastor Mark, God, and just, yeah, help us to understand more about your characteristics, God, and as we explore what you did in the garden before going to the cross, God. I just, yeah, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us what we need to hear God and that you'll convict us of what we need to be convicted of, God. And I just thank you so much for the body of Northgate and how they love biblical truth and how they love one another. Thank you so much for all you've done for us and for another day that we can live and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.
1: Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Uh, as we are continuing uh, to follow Jesus in his final days, and this time leading up to Easter. Uh, and this morning, uh, we are following Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was actually pointed out to me this week that uh, two of the greatest spiritual battles in the history of the world uh, were fought in gardens. The Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, The first one was by Adam as he yielded to temptation and fell into sin. And the second was fought by Jesus as he yielded to God and paved the way to forgiveness. If you'd like to follow along with me, uh, we want to read that account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 36 to 46. It says, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them there, again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father God, as we... Lord, just as we follow Jesus into the garden again this morning, Lord, we just pray that um, Lord, our hearts would be prepared and ready to hear what you would have us uh, hear this morning. We pray that your word would would speak to us. And Lord, as as we just... As we witness Jesus going through this time of sorrow and trial and suffering, that, Lord, it would speak to our own hearts as we go through those same sorts of trials in our own hearts, in our own lives. And, Lord, yeah, I just ask that you would, you would be with us, that, Lord, your spirit would be among us as we, as we read and listen to this truth, and that, Lord, you would just work, uh, work through this sermon in, in just a, in, a, in, a, in a powerful way in the lives of the people who are listening this morning. And even in my own heart as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, As I said this morning, we continue to look at Jesus' final days leading up to the cross. And as we come to our passage, understand, these are the last moments that Jesus would have. Before his arrest and his trial and all too soon, the cross itself. These are literally his final minutes of freedom. The time that remains for Jesus on earth could now be better measured in hours than it would be in days. And with the Passover meal that he celebrated with his disciples now over, even though the hour is late, Jesus has one more stop uh, that he wants to make before the night is done. There's one more thing that Jesus has to do before he's ready to face the cross. And Max Licato, in his book, uh, The Angels Were Silent, he sets the scene for us. As he writes, it's nearly midnight when they leave the upper room and descend through the streets of the city. They pass the lower pool and they exit the fountain gate and walk out of Jerusalem. The roads are lined with fires and tents of Passover pilgrims. Most are asleep, heavied with the evening meal. Those still awake think little of the band of men walking through the chalky roads. They pass through the valley and they ascend the pass which will take them to Gethsemane. Someone within the city walls, the twelfth apostle, darts down a street. His feet have been washed by the man he will betray. His heart has been claimed by the evil one. And he runs to find the chief priest. The final encounter of the battle has begun. As Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem, he sees what the disciples can't. It is here on the outskirts of Jerusalem that the battle will end. And Jesus knew it. He knew that before the war was over, he would be taken captive. He knew that before victory would come defeat. He knew that before the throne would come the cup. And he's afraid. He turns and begins the final ascent to the garden. When he reaches the entry, he stops and turns his eyes towards his circle of friends. It will be the last time he sees them before they abandon him. He knows what they will do when the soldiers come. He knows their betrayal is only minutes away. But he doesn't accuse and he doesn't lecture. Instead, he prays. And that's where we find Jesus. In the garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane was known as a place where olives were actually pressed into oil. That's literally what the name Gethsemane means. It means oil press. And while the garden that Jesus was in was, it was likely beautiful and fragrant and a peaceful place. Tonight it would be a place where Jesus himself would be pressed. A place of pressing. As we read Matthew 26, we're told in verse 36, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I'll go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And reading those words and just even knowing what Jesus is about to face. I wonder if it's hard for Jesus to believe the time had finally come. I mean, for 30 years he had lived his perfect life. And for three years he had ministered to others. Healing the sick. Caring for the outcasts and the unloved. Teaching people. Offering grace to sinners. And in it all, trying to point people to his Father in heaven. But now the moment had come when all of that was behind him. And all that Jesus had before him now was the cross. And Matthew lets us know that in facing that truth, Jesus doesn't want to be alone. So he takes with him his disciples, especially the three who are closest to him, Peter, James, and John. And with them near, Jesus then sets his heart to prayer. Because prayer is the one consolation and comfort that Jesus has left at that moment. And it's a moment where Jesus' own words give us a window into what he was feeling. And the level of of turmoil that was arising in his soul. He says in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death. Jesus was telling his disciples with vivid clarity, I... I'm really troubled here. I'm beyond troubled. I am distressed. I am distraught. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. In the message paraphrase, Jesus' words are, I feel bad enough right now to die. And no artist or poet or scholar could ever hope to portray the anguish that was beginning to sweep over Jesus' soul when he stood in that garden. Because Jesus knew what was about to happen. In fact, for Jesus, there was no getting around it. The cross was simply part of Jesus' life. The cross was the reason that the word took on flesh in the first place. And right from his birth, the shadow of the cross loomed before Christ. Charles Swindell writes in his book, The Darkness and the Dawn. He says, the two more memorable paintings that I have seen bear the same title, The Shadow of the Cross. The first picture is a scene inside Joseph's carpenter shop where Joseph is working alongside Jesus. And Jesus is portrayed as a young teenager and he's paused from his work to look out the shop window and he stands at full height, stretching his arms wide. And in doing so, he is casting an ominous shadow across the wall behind him. The shadow in the form of a cross. The second painting depicts Jesus as a little lad running with outstretched arms to his mother, the son at his back, and casting upon the path before him as the dark shadow of the cross. And Swindell says both paintings leave the indelible impression on the viewer that the cross was with Christ from the very beginning. For Jesus, the cross was the looming reality throughout his life. But on every other day, the cross was still off in the distance. Every other day that Jesus lived was not the day that he would be called to suffer in that way. Every other day was not the day that he would have to lay down his life. But today was not every other day. Tonight, this night, was the night that Jesus would feel the nails and bear the cross. And that reality was becoming all too real. For Jesus as the night was slipping away. Because as I've told you before. The brutality of the cross. I think is something that is lost on us. In our modern world. We're so comfortable. Everything's so sanitized. Most of us will never even know a fragment. Of the kind of pain Jesus experienced on the cross. And we will count ourselves lucky for it. The cross. Was an instrument of torture. Designed to produce the greatest degree of shame to inflict the maximum amount of pain for the longest period of time before inevitably ending in death for the person who suffered it. It was a form of torture and suffering so unique and so terrible in its brutality that the ancient world actually invented a new word to describe it. And it's a word you know today, excruciating. Made up of two Latin words, ex which means out of and crux, which we get crucifixion from, which literally means the cross. Excruciating is of the cross. So Jesus knows what is about to happen to his body. And yet as horrifying as that suffering is going to be, I think Jesus also knew that physical pain was only part of what he was about to experience. Because Jesus knew that upon that cross and for the first time in his life, the first time since creation began, the first time in eternity itself, Jesus was, would also know sin. On the cross, the wrath of God for all the sin of the world would fall upon the Savior. And when that happened, the Father himself would be forced to turn away. From his son. Jesus was about to know what it meant to be God forsaken. To the extent that when he was dying on the cross, he would look to heaven and cry in Matthew 27, verse 46 My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was a moment when father and son would be torn apart. And when that happened, Jesus would be left to experience death. All alone. And you know, I think alone is a word that we have learned a new appreciation of us for for this year. You know, with COVID 19, it's been a year where the idea of loneliness, of being alone, is far more real and far more personal to us than it probably ever has been. I mean, we've seen families separated, we've been distanced from friends, and even spouses have been kept apart, you know, for their own safety. Even when one's in the hospital. Even when one is facing the very end. And that bothers us. Because I think we know deep in our hearts, no one should have to die alone. And no one should have to die feeling forsaken. Found a story that speaks to that about a pastor who had a sick young son. And the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with the boy, but they knew that he was dying. And finally it was decided he must have spinal meningitis. But the only way they could know for sure was to take a needle about six inches long and place it at the base of the child's spine and draw out fluid to have it tested. The problem was if the son moved, the needle might hit a nerve and the son could be paralyzed from the waist down. As the doctors prepared the boy for surgery, the son grew more and more afraid. And the father went in to try to comfort his child. But when the son saw his father, he held out his arms and just screamed, Daddy, help me! Daddy, don't leave me! But the doctors immediately saw the danger the son was in and they asked the father to leave the child so that they could hold him down and do the procedure. And as the father stood out in the hall, tears streaming down his face, he heard face. He heard the terrified calls of his son and the father wanted to take him in his arms. He wanted to comfort him. He wanted to pick up his son and call the whole thing off. But he knew that he couldn't. The father knew that this was something that his son had to face. And he had to face it alone. And that's the weight of the burden that was pressing on Jesus' soul that night in Gethsemane so long ago. And the only comfort that Jesus could could find was in calling out to his father in prayer one last time before that burden came upon him. And we read about that moment beginning in verse 39. It says, and going a little further... He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words once again. You know, for most of us, I think that Jesus praying in that Garden of Gethsemane is a familiar scene we have probably seen it depicted in artwork and other things. But Charles Swindoll comments that in Mark's gospel, it tells us that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he fell to the ground and prayed. But it's done with a Greek verb, with a verb tense that describes continual and constant action. Swindell says, so it could actually be read like this. Jesus began falling to the ground and praying, and then falling to the ground and praying, and then falling and praying. The image of Jesus kneeling quietly in the moonlight, praying with carefully folded hands in a serene fashion is likely not the way it happened. It's more of a picture of a man coming apart. Jesus is pacing. He can't stand still. And when he even manages to stand, it's only until he collapses once again in despair. And Luke's gospel adds that he prayed until drops of blood sweated from his brow. And that's actually a medical, a known medical condition called hematohydrosis. And it says it can occur in individuals who are, quote, suffering under extreme levels of stress. And even more than those things, you can hear the anguish in the very words of Jesus as he speaks. As he says again in verse 39, My father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass. And you know, sitting here today, those words may seem almost unbelievable to us because Jesus is praying. He's asking, he's pleading that the cross would pass him by. Three times we're told he prayed the same thing. Three times he begged his father in heaven for another way. Three times he asked that the path that his father had laid out before him would not lead him to Calvary. Father, please don't make me face this. Not in this way. Not like this. Father, please, anything but the cross. Is there any other way? And know, nowhere, I think, do we get a sense of Jesus' full humanity more than we do right there. Because, you know, when I read the Bible about Jesus' life, most of what Jesus did in his life leaves me breathless. I mean, you read about his miracles. You read about just the wisdom he had. You read his teachings, and they're amazing. You think, wow, that's, that's incredible. But you also realize, that's not me. I couldn't do any of those things. But Jesus, when he's praying in the garden, Jesus praying to God, asking and pleading, is there another way? That's something I admit I know all too well in my own life. And I know that my heart can never understand the fullest depths of what Jesus was suffering that night. But I also know that my heart recognizes it. And I wonder if if you have ever prayed your own prayer like that. Prayed begging God for another way. Prayed that hoping that God might change something that you knew Was unchangeable. Prayed a prayer with so much passion that it felt like everything in your world was on the line as you prayed. Because I know I have prayed that prayer in my life more than once. And that's what Gethsemane is about. It's a place where most of us have probably been at one time or another. A place where everything in your life is stripped away and you just feel like you're laid bare. It's a place where you feel like everything has just slipped away and you're in that place where you're about to have nothing left. It's a place where you find yourself where you have nothing left and you have no place left to go except to God. Gethsemane is a place of deepest grief and overwhelming sorrow. Where you have to face unwanted circumstances. And our hearts know that place. And when I've been in that same place. It may seem strange to say it. But I actually. I take great comfort. From this passage. I take great comfort from Gethsemane. Because Jesus in Gethsemane knows. That Jesus understands. That Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be where I I myself am in that hard place. That Jesus knows what it's like to feel alone. That Jesus knows what it's like to have people disappoint him. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to have to face something that you don't want to have to face. Jesus is a fellow sufferer. And that comforts me. But you know what, even more than comfort, I am thankful to Gethsemane because in Gethsemane, Jesus also gave me the words in that place that my heart needed to say. Those words, not as I will, but as you will. Because when you are in your own Gethsemane moment, you discover it's not just a place of suffering. It also needs to be a place of surrender. And for Jesus, this was his moment of giving over. It was the moment that even before the nails would pierce his flesh, this was the moment that Jesus denies himself and truly picks up the cross. And he accepts that cup from his father. And the author of the book, Intense Moments with the Savior, pictures it like this. Jesus pushes himself up from the ground and lifts his eyes towards heaven. Yet not as I will, but what you will. And his hands are no longer clutching the grass in despair. They're no longer clasping each other in prayer. They're now raised towards heaven. Reaching not for bread or fish or any other good gift, not even for answers, but they are reaching for the cup from his father's hand. And though it's a terrible cup, brimming brimming with the wrath of God for the ferment of sins for centuries past and centuries yet to come, and though it is a cup he fears, he accepts it. Because more than he fears the cup, he loves the hand from which it comes. And I know the author of Hebrews says much the same thing in Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8. It reads, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was his son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see, even suffering became a path to obedience and surrender for Jesus. And that's what the garden moment is all about. And with that in mind, I want to give you just a few quick applications about this passage. I hope will be relevant to our lives today. Because whether or not right now you are in your own personal Gethsemane moment, there's good chances that at some point in your life you will be. And here are three things I want you to hold on to. Three truths, three lessons to hold close to your heart. The first lesson is this. Use the good times. To prepare for the hard times. Um, There's an old saying that goes if you only pray when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. And for Jesus, his prayer in Gethsemane is not a last desperate plea in a crisis. For Jesus, Gethsemane is the pinnacle moment of an entire life that has been built on prayer. I mean, Jesus was a man of constant prayer, prayer was his habit. And Gethsemane is actually a familiar place of prayer for Jesus. In fact, that's how Judas probably finds him to betray him. He knows you're going to find Jesus praying in the garden. And Jesus' words to his own disciples, verse 41, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is telling his disciples, boys, you're not in a crisis yet, but it's coming and you don't even know it. But the best thing you can be doing with your time right now is by getting ready for that in prayer. Watch and pray to be ready when temptation and trials come. You know the way that you live your life every day, the way that you spend time in prayer and spend time in obedience in the good times, it matters when the crises come in your life. We need to prepare in the good times for when the hard times come. The second lesson I think we have to learn from this passage is that we truly need to trust in God in all the Gethsemane's in our life. Because, you know, there's going to be times when people in your life let you down. Just like Jesus' disciples, he finds them sleeping. Um, you know, sometimes you depend on those people and they let you down. I mean, you wanted them to be there for you, you were hoping they would have your back, that you're hoping that they would help in some way that they didn't. And it's hard. But try not to be too hard on those people either. Because you know what? You can't know what they're going through just like they can't fully understand what you're going through. And people make mistakes and people sometimes get things wrong. People are going to let you down and it's going to hurt. But hear the lesson again. God never fails you. God will always, always be there for you. Uh, D.L. Moody uh, used to say, trust in yourself and you're doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends and they will die and leave you. Trust in money and it will be taken from you. Trust in your reputation and some slanderous tongue may blast it. But trust in God and you are never confounded in time or eternity. In your moments of trial, you need to know that God is there for you. I mean, Jesus may have had to be in that garden alone and face the cross alone, but you don't have to. Because Jesus was forsaken, so you don't have to be. Jesus suffered without mercy so that you can find mercy when you suffer. And the promises of God are this, Hebrews 13, 5. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And again, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Life can offer us us many unexpected obstacles. Life can be full of dangers and sorrows and the deepest of heartaches, but we can take comfort from the fact that we truly never have to face any of those things alone. Because God is with us and he will never fail us. And that brings us to our last lesson, probably our big lesson this morning. And that lesson is that in all of these things, we need to learn to surrender to God's will in all things. Because again, the reality is that all of us will go through the darkness of our own Gethsemane at some point in our lives. We are all going to find us in a place where we are being pressed. We will all experience trials and sufferings. And it's in those moments of life that we have to choose. Choose what we're going to hold on to. Choose what we will trust in. Choose who we will follow. We must choose whether or not we too will pick up our crosses. And accept what God has for our life. And you know in these next few weeks as we follow Jesus to the cross leading to up to Easter, there's no better way to get our hearts ready for Easter than to make the same choice in our lives that Jesus Christ makes in this passage. To choose to do and accept the will of God for our lives. To say, not as I will, but your will be done. In fact, that's not just an Easter thing. There's no better way to live than to make that exact same choice each and every day of our lives. In fact, that's what Jesus, I think, had in mind when he tells his disciples in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? And you know, with those words, Jesus cuts to the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Choosing the will of God over our own, dying to self and living for Christ. And it's been that way from the very start. This choice that we have to make. You know, in the Garden of Eden, mankind chose to do his own will. And it brought sin and death into the world. But in Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus chose the will of God. And it brought freedom and life and salvation to each and every one of us. And we need to make that same choice. To surrender. To do that every single day. To make those words our own. To make those words the words we live our life by. Your will be done. I just want to close this morning with a poem and a prayer that was written by an author named Ken Geyer that I think says what we all need to hear. It says, Dear Man of Sorrows, Thank you for Gethsemane. Thank you for a place to go when there's no place to go but God. For a place to pray and to cry and to find out who I really am underneath the rhetoric. I know that sometime, somewhere, some type of Gethsemane awaits me. Just as it did you. I know that someday a dark night will fall upon my soul just as it did yours. But I shudder to think about it. About the darkness and the aloneness and the despair. Prepare me for that dark night, Lord. Prepare me now by helping me realize that although Gethsemane is the most terrifying of places... It is also the most tranquil. The terror comes in realizing that I am not in control of my lives or the lives of those I love. But the tranquility comes in realizing that you are. Help me when it's dark and I'm alone and afraid. Help me to put my trembling hand in yours and trust you with my life and with the lives of those I love. Someday I know I will wrestle with circumstances that are beyond my control that some sort of suffering will pin me to the cold, hard ground. But when that happens, Lord Jesus, help me to realize that the victories of heaven are the defeats of the human soul, and that my strength is not found in how courageously I struggle, but in how completely I surrender. This year, as we approach Easter, remember Gethsemane. Remember that Jesus Christ himself denied himself and chose the cross. And remember that his call, that call is the same that he gives to us each and every day. His call is for his followers to do the same. To pick up our crosses and follow him. To pray as Jesus prayed and to live as Jesus lived. Because it is in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is facing the inevitability of his own death. That Jesus actually shows us and teaches us the way that we should live. By saying not our will, but God's will be done. Let's pray. Lord, Um. this morning it's been a hard lesson. A hard lesson for me and I'm sure a hard lesson for many who are listening. Because Lord... Gethsemane brings us to that place that none of us want to be. And yet, Lord, even as you taught your disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus in the garden shows us how just powerful and how timely that prayer is. That surrendering ourselves to you and your will. And Lord, in our own times of Gethsemane, in our own times when we have to face trials and hardships and trouble, Lord, I pray that we would be able to pray that same prayer of surrender. In fact, we pray that each and every moment of our lives, we would be able to pray that prayer of denying ourselves and picking up our crosses to follow you. And Lord, that in doing so, Even though those moments are so hard and so difficult that we might find just the freedom and the peace and even at that times the joy that is to be discovered in surrendering and living fully for you in all that we do. Um, Yeah, Lord, thank you for Gethsemane. Because even though, Lord, it's a place none of us want to be, Lord, it is exactly how we need to be living. We thank you for this. I pray that you would just apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.